Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 16. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. And there is a church, an earlier church, called the Church of St. Paul in the Three Fountains. It's one of the oldest churches in Rome. It's the traditional site of Paul's martyrdom on the Via Laurentina. But his body then, Christian friends, picked up Paul's body on the road and put it near the second mile marker on the Ostian Way, buried him in a family tomb of a Roman woman named Martrona Lucilla, and put up a grave marker near the road. It was there in the fourth century that the Roman Emperor Constantine built the first church commemorating Paul's martyrdom. And during the fourth century, the tradition tells us that Paul remains were moved into a marble sarcophagus and buried in the church's crypt, the tombstone reading Paulo, Apostolo, and Martyr. Now that is St. Paul's outside the wall of Rome. It's a beautiful church. His bones are there under the altar. You can kneel and pray there. Ancient records suggest that Nero personally knew Paul, that it's likely that Paul was beheaded through the order of the prefect of Rome. In that church, St. Paul outside the wall is a great place to study apostolic succession, which is an uninterrupted transmission of spiritual authority from the apostles through successive popes and bishops in the Roman Catholic Church. And so in his church there, you'll see all 266 popes in perfect succession in order. There's Francis, but each pope, when he's named pope, a mosaic is made in a circle, and then the circle is put up. You see all the circles going around the church, all the popes in order. Pope Francis is number 266, and there's a spot there ready for the next pope, whoever the Holy Spirit elects will be put there next. The church started by Peter and Paul is one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. This is the oldest uh, image that has been found of St. Paul. The Vatican has it. It was in the catacombs of St. Tecla. It's been refurbished. It looks like that is the oldest image we have of what Paul might have looked like. So tonight, our final chapter, he gives some personal greetings. He gives his final instructions, and then he gives a doxology. Let's start with the personal greetings. I commend you our sister Phoebe, a deaconess of the church at Sincere, that you may receive her in the Lord as benefits the saints and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a helper of many and of myself as well. The deaconess, Saint Phoebe now, she's commemorated September 3rd in both the Catholic and Orthodox churches. The troparion to Saint Phoebe in the Orthodox church reads this, enlightened by grace and taught the faith by the chosen vessel of Christ, you were found worthy of the diaconate and you carried Paul's words to Rome. O Deaconess Phoebe, pray to Christ God that his spirit may enlighten our souls. And the contarchion of St. Phoebe, Paul proclaimed you a protector of many, and you did become his helper. Hearken to those who approach you with faith and who cry out to you with love. Rejoice, glory of Corinth and pride of Achaia. Rejoice, you lamp of Sincere. Rejoice, O Deaconess Phoebe. Because Phoebe was a deacon, a lot of people turned to her protesting that women today should be deacons. Cardinal Giuseppe Petrocci, the Archbishop of L'Aquila, Italy, was just named by Pope Francis 
to head a commission, and they will again be studying the possibility of women being deacons in the church, deacons like Phoebe was in the time of Paul. There are 10 members on that committee, five of whom are women. They come from all over the Ukraine, the U.S., Spain, Great Britain, Switzerland, Italy, and France. And one of our own from Omaha, Nebraska, is on the papal committee to study women deacons, and that's Deacon James Keating, which you all know. So Phoebe was the first deacon. Sincrie is a seaport city near, very near Corinth where Paul was writing this letter right on the eastern side of the isthmus of Corinth there. Phoebe had a home base in Sincrie. She had a house church. This is where the early churches met in homes. There weren't buildings yet. And many Pauline scholars believe that Deaconess Phoebe was the one trusted by Paul to deliver this precious letter to the Roman church. And remember, this letter to the Romans will have Paul's, it's the crown jewel of Paul's theology. It's a very important letter, and he entrusts it to this woman, this deaconess named Phoebe. Paul refers to her as a servant and a deacon and a trusted helper and patron of many. So she's very generous. Now, Phoebe is a Greek name, and remember what Paul's up against in Greek. We've talked a lot about Rome, but he's writing this letter from Corinth, Greece. And in Greek mythology, for instance, Phoebe, the name Phoebe, was a titaness of brilliance and the moon. Her name, Phoebe, means pure, radiant, or bright. And Phoebe was married to her own brother, Titan Coes. And together they had two children, Asteria and Leto, and they gave birth to Olympian twins, Apollo and Artemis. Now those are names you should remember from your Greek mythology studies in fourth and fifth grade. Artemis, the Greek goddess of the hunt, and her twin brother Apollo, the Greek god of the sun, the light, archery, and music. The temple of Artemis in Ephesus will be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We'll get to that next week. But Artemis will be called Diana to the Romans. Apollo keeps his name by both Greeks and Romans, he is Apollo, and he is a a, a great god, little g-god to the Greeks and Romans at the time. Now, according to Greek mythology, it was grandmother Phoebe who handed the Oracle of Delphi to Apollo, her grandson, as a birthday present. Phoebe was the third goddess to hold the great Oracle of Delphi, which she in turn bestowed upon her grandson Apollo for his birthday. So look at this map of ancient Greece, and you'll see where Delphi is. It's right in the center, and it's it's on the western spur of Mount Parnassus. Delphi was associated with the Greek god Apollo, and according to mythology, the hill was guarded by a giant serpent called Python, who was a follower of the cult of Gaia, the earth, for hunting hundreds and hundreds of years after killing the python. Apollo claimed Delphi as his own sanctuary, sanctuary, and his first triumph was when he slew with his bow and arrow the serpent python, which lay dead at his feet. Many sculptures of that. Two hours north of Athens, it was known to be a magical and mysterious sanctuary of Apollo at Delphi, and Delphi was considered the geographical center or the navel of the ancient Greek world. So the oracle of Delphi was a prophetess, a powerful female spirit who could predict an advise on future events. And many soldiers, politicians, and very important people in ancient Greece came to Delphi to consult the oracle. So seated in a cave, this creature, a powerful spiritual being, could, according to legend, foresee the future. The prophetess women were called Pythias, and a Pythia was given to any priestess throughout the history of the temple of Apollo at Delphi. And according to Plutarch, who once served as a male priest at Delphi, the Pythia first entered the inner chamber of the temple. Then she sat on a tripod and she inhaled light hydrocarbon gases that escaped from a chasm of the porous earth where the python, the dead python, was buried. Then she would receive the oracle and men would interpret her gibberish from a trans-like state from the fumes. Now in 206, Professor Giuseppe 
Ediope of the National Institute of Geophysics and Volcanology in Rome reported that a simple cocktail of carbon dioxide mixed with methane could have induced the psychic trances that the Pythia used to channel the gods at Delphi. So was there possible drugging and divination going on for profit? The Lord God of Israel does not tolerate divination. It's an abomination to him. He says through Ezekiel, my hand will be against the prophets who see delusive visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in my council of my people, nor be enrolled in the registrar of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. You will know that I am the Lord God. Therefore, you shall no more see delusive visions, nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So, I just want you to realize what St. Paul was up against. Huge spiritual forces. He had attempted to evangelize a Hellenized, paganized, now Roman Empire. And so when we get into the Ephesians, when he tells them to put on the whole armor of God, and he says, he says that we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Paul is up against a lot. Now, the sanctuary at Delphi was dedicated to that god Apollo, and it was the most spiritual site of all Greek territories. Alexander the Great, for instance, would go to consult the oracle of Apollo at Delphi before battles, before major battles. The Greeks honored and they feared their many little g-gods because the gods, if you pleased the gods, then your soldiers would be victorious in battle. But if you angered the gods, you would suffer humiliation and defeat. So Phoebe was the Titanus, the third sibyl at Delphi, who gave the oracle to her grandson Apollo. Now, Phoebe, Paul's friend, it's a Greek name, but Paul's delivery of the kerygma, the euangelion, the good news of salvation of Jesus Christ, would convert this Greek woman named Phoebe. And Phoebe would become the first deaconess of the church at Sincrie. And she would become Paul's helper and a helper to many. So Paul gives her this first two lines of this chapter. It's like a huge recommendation letter, especially if Phoebe is carrying the letter to the Roman church. This new Greek Christian Phoebe would have to know, she would have had to know all about the temple at Delphi. It was, it was thriving at the time of Paul. It had been going for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, there was a temple of Apollo there. Uh, the ruins are fantastic. The serpent columns in Delphi around the altar of Apollo, the serpent, he slayed the python. There was a temple of Athena there in the Greek, that's Minerva in Rome. These temples were universal, everyone from the empire would go to pray at these temples and all sorts of gifts would be given to please the God. So there was a Athenian treasure still standing. A lot of these buildings given as gifts to the gods, trying to please the gods, even a stadium. It's quite, quite a very universal place to go in the Roman empire with lots and lots and lots of art and beautiful things to look at. Now, which reminded me of our own Sistine Chapel, and it's called the Great Chapel. It's in Rome, Italy. 25,000 people a day go to the Vatican Art Museums, maybe not with COVID, but but on a good year, 25,000 people a day go. It's very universal, people from all over the world, and there's lots and lots of art, beautiful sculptures, paintings. This, just one chapel, the Sistine Chapel, painted by Michelangelo and others, but uh, you 
you can go to this website and you can take a virtual tour and it's fascinating. I spent way too much time on this website, but on the, on the ceiling, there are spandrels and pendatives and sibyls and prophets and central stories. These are the spandrels, the triangle shapes. Then in the corner are the four pendatives, Moses and the bronze serpent, David slaying Goliath, Judith and Holfernis, the, the head of Holfernis. You remember that story and the punishment of Haman in the book of Esther. And actually Esther is in the act of pleading with the king. And this was regarded by the church as a prefiguration of the Virgin Mary in her role as intercessor in pleading with King Jesus on judgment day, because the great piece in the front is judgment day. There are central stories in the middle. I've used a lot of those in lectures, but what I want to focus on tonight are the symbols and prophets. Michelangelo painted symbols along with the prophets. There are seven prophets at each arrow and there are five sibyls. Prophets and sibyls seated on monumental thrones. They're huge, and they are alternated along the long sides, and the short sides have Zechariah on one end and Jonah on the other end. The arrow is pointing to Jonah. He's huge, and he is right above the last judgment scene, and that is an incredible piece. There's Jonah's feet at the top there at the arrow. Jonah, and then Jesus. See Jonah? He's huge. And then Jonah, then Jesus, and then the altar. Jesus crucified and the altar. It's called the altar of Jonah. Jonah is seated on a throne with a large fish by his side, representing the belly of the whale that he is reputed to have spent three days inside. And so you see that, that Jesus is the new Jonah, the risen, risen from the belly of the tomb after three days. Why this? Jesus himself turns to this story, this prophet, when he tells the scribes and Pharisees, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just came right out and told them. Four chapters later, they're demanding another sign. And again, Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he leaves them and departs. Luke has it recorded as well. And so this fresco of Jonah is at the highest place in the Sistine Chapel to show this prophetic significance of Jonah to Jesus. Now on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo alternates these sibyls and prophets. And one that's up there is the one we just talked about, the Sibyl Adelphi, the Delphinic Sibyl. And you say, why would this be in the Vatican? Well, seven of the prophets are Israeli prophets. The other five are female sibyls of the classical world alternating male and female figures, seated on thrones, depicting reading manuscripts, books, scrolls. The pagan sibyls have been included to symbolize that Messiah was to come for all the people of the world, not just the Jews. So you have Michelangelo's beautiful paintings of Jeremiah, then the Persian sibyl, then Ezekiel, then the Erythrean sibyl, then Joel, then Zechariah, then the Delphinic sibyl. And, and there she is, and she's beautiful, and she's one of the best sold pieces at the art museum at the Vatican. There's Isaiah, and there's the Cumian sibyl. She's an older woman. If you zoom in on her face, you can see the age and the wisdom in her face. Then the prophet Daniel, then the Libyan Sybil. So seven prophets, five sibyls, prophets and sibyls testifying to the continuous waiting of mankind for redemption, for a savior. The prophets did in fact foresee the coming of Christ for the people of Israel, but the sibyls, although they belong to the, the pagan world, they represented, they're represented here because their attempted prophetic gifts extending the weight 
for redemption from the chosen people to all mankind. All mankind was searching for truth, seeking truth. And Jesus is that final piece, the final piece of the mystery. Jesus says, I am the truth. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. All right. So Paul is commending his sister Phoebe, the deaconess at Sincrie. She's a helper to many. And he goes on next to greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I, but also all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Greet also the church in their house. So Prisca, her full name is Priscilla and Aquila. They have a house church as well. They are Catholic saints. We celebrate them on July 8th as a married couple. That's rare. They are also mentioned in Acts 18. After Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, where he's writing this letter to the Romans, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, lately come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, Emperor Claudius, had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. You guys know about that. The expulsion of the Jews, the Edict of Claudius. This affected Prisca and Aquila. And Paul went to see them because he was of the same trade and he stayed with them and they worked for by their trade, they were all tent makers. And he argued in the synagogue every Sabbath and he persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. So this first century married couple, a Jewish Christian husband from Pontus, a Jewish Christian wife from Italy, Aquila, in the Roman language, is it can be a stark constellation that looks like an eagle, or it can be the genus of a certain type of eagles, or it can be a man's name or a surname. But these saints, this, this pair, Aquila and Prisca, were married. They were tent makers. I also found some evidence that they worked on large draperies and textiles. And can you imagine them sitting with Paul, doing their craft, sewing on the tents or the fabrics, and discussing the gospel? And they learned so much. And Prisca is usually, I think, almost always mentioned first, which is very unusual to have the woman named first. But Prisca listened to Paul quite well, and she became an excellent teacher herself. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave and sailed for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila went also. And it tells us in Acts 18 that at Sincrae, Paul cut his hair because he had made a vow probably a Nazarite vow, but where did he do it? At Sincrae. And we know it was probably at the house church of Phoebe, because Phoebe is the deaconess at the church at Sincrae. And then they came to Ephesus, where we're also going next. And he left them there. And he himself went to the synagogue and argued with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, Paul declined. But on leaving them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now in Ephesus, that's in Asia Minor, Prisca and Aquila had a decisive role in completing the Christian formation of the Alexandrian Jew named Apollo. He's the first century Apollo. He only knew the faith superficially at first. And we're told that Priscilla and Aquila took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. So we read that there was a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. I remember they had said for hours and hours and hours on end with Paul sewing tents. So they taught Apollo 
the bigger picture, more of the facts. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully confuted the Jews in public, showing by the way of the scriptures that Jesus Christ was the Lord. So Aquila and Priscilla helped Apollo become a better preacher. They helped him understand the faith and the scriptures better. Paul goes on, greet my beloved Ephenatus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked hard among you. Greet Atachondrius and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are men of note among the apostles. They were in Christ before me, fellow prisoners. Greet Amphitheus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. My beloved Stashes. Greet Apuleius, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Maybe Aristobulus is deceased, but greet those who belong to his family. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. When we look at this great list of names, we see Jewish names, we see Greek names, we see Roman names. Some of these people we know, some we don't. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet my beloved Persis who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, eminent in the Lord, and also his mother and mine. Who is Rufus? We have one clue. There was Rufus mentioned in Mark 15. It's when Simon of Cyrene is pulled from the crowd that day to help Jesus carry his cross. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. So apparently Simon of Cyrene had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. See the two little boys there watching their dad helping Jesus carry the cross in this painting. Greet, we don't know if it's the same Rufus, but it's not a very common name. It well may have been. Greet Asynthius, Phlegon, Hermas, Protabus, Hermas, the brethren of who are with them. Greet Philagogus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, this Greek name, and all the saints who are with them. And greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. You see already the universality of the church and to greet one another with a holy kiss. What's that mean? What's that mean? That, of course, my friends, is the sign of peace at Mass, the holy kiss, where with COVID now we can't do it, but we miss it. We miss this sign of peace, shalom. There's a profound nature to the sign of peace. It goes way beyond a simple handshake. It means way more, shalom, peace. For instance, if Steve and I are in a fight and we go to mass and it's time for the sign of peace, I can't in authenticity offer him the sign of peace unless I forgive him in my heart and ask for his forgiveness. So oftentimes we're apologizing before we give one another the sign of peace. You can't, you can't give a holy kiss of peace when you're not in real unity. And so unity in community, you see how unity is part of that word, unity in the community, in the body of Christ. We have to be at peace with one another. So Paul encourages them to greet one another with a holy kiss. We're missing that right now in the church. Some of us can't even get to mass. We're missing the holy kiss that says we're in communion. Uh, Paul's going to use this four times, this holy kiss idea with the Corinthians, with the Romans, with the Thessalonians, and our first pope, St. Peter, will also say greet one another with a kiss of love. He calls it a kiss of love, the kiss of peace, the sign of peace, shalom, the holy kiss, but to be in unity. And then Paul reminds us that all the churches of 
Christ greet you. Churches are springing up. Paul has planted several. Other people have started churches, but they're the same church. There is one faith, one body of Christ. So all the churches are united and all the churches of Christ greet you. And I found this painting. I've never seen it before, but the Lord blessed me with it this afternoon. It's a farewell of the saints, Peter and Paul, showing the two apostles giving each other the holy kiss before they are taken away from martyrdom. So Paul's begging us for unity tonight. Holy communion, union with the whole body of Christ. I appeal to you, brethren, to take note of those who create dissensions and difficulties in opposition to the doctrine which you have been taught. Avoid them. Avoid them. Get off Facebook. Get off podcasts. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. They want to see how many hits they can get, how many people play them. It's, it, it's, and Paul says, avoid them. They serve their own appetites. And by fair and flattering words, they deceive the hearts of the simple-minded. For while your obedience, Romans, is known to all, I rejoice over you. I would have you wise as to what is good and guileless as to what is evil. When I read that, I immediately was taken to Jesus Christ, reminding his disciples of coming persecutions when he said, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I would have you as wise as to what is good, says Paul, and guileless as to what is evil. Then the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The python will be crushed. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sapphisar, my kinsman. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, this is Paul Scribe, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasure, and our brother Quartus, greet you. There was one more stone, just like the pilot stone that was found in Israel by uh, Caesarea Maritima. There is a stone found in Corinth. It's called the Erastus stone. It was found in 1929. It might be the same Erastus that Paul is speaking about. He lived during the reign of Emperor Claudius around the middle of the first century. He was named Erastus and he paid for the theater to be paved with stone at Corinth. He was a very generous man in the community. The stone was uncovered in 1929, but it's ancient from the first century with his name on it. So the final doxology of our letter to the Romans. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. From Alpha to Omega, from Romans 1 to Romans 16, Paul begins the salutation to the Roman church with the obedience of faith. Paul's final farewell to the Roman church ends with the obedience of faith, with Jesus Christ being that final piece of the mystery and God's grace being always found in the seven sacraments of the church and the grace of the sacraments and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of love and truth to bring about unity in the one body of Christ through the obedience of faith. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you for this Apostle Paul, how he's touched our hearts this year. We pray for the obedience of faith that we might persevere. You've poured out so much grace on us. 
We miss, with COVID, we miss the sacraments. We miss confession as much as we used to be able to go. We miss the Eucharist. Just, we miss it, Lord. And we thank you for the day when we once again will be able to partake in the sacraments and just feel the flowing of the grace and have unity in the church. We thank you for this apostle. We thank you for this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you are unpeeling and revealing to each of us in our study of scripture that you are revealing your mysteries to us. And they are so precious. And we praise you and we thank you and we love you. Amen. That was part two of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 16, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.